Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. And this midnight, I will tell you the tale of the White Chapel Women, Part Six. Content Warning This episode contains sometimes graphic descriptions of violent acts committed against women. In every instance, I will be quoting verbatim from primary source materials and nothing else. If you wish to fast forward through these descriptions, I invite you to do so. I include them not for sensationalism, but because they are an integral part of the truth. Before Mary Jane Kelly went to bed on the last night of her life, she took off her boots and placed them by the fireplace. She took off her clothes and left them folded neatly on a chair. She got into bed wearing a thin nightgown. Forensic evidence suggests that she went to sleep on the side of the bed facing the thin partition, her head turned toward it, the thin bedsheet pulled up to her chin. It seems that Mary Jane Kelly was sharing her bed with someone that night. Remembering that she had her now-estranged boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, read her newspaper accounts of the Whitechapel murders, it makes you wonder if Mary Kelly went to bed that night with a man that she either knew and trusted or someone she did not perceive to be threatening. Whatever the truth may be, Forensic evidence shows that after she lay down to sleep, the Whitechapel murderer, whoever he was, cut Mary Jane Kelly's throat as she lay on her right side facing the wall. According to two people, she may have cried out the words, Oh, murder! The blood spatter on the thin partition wall and a cut in the bedsheet tells us this is how she died. After cutting Mary Jane Kelly's throat, the Whitechapel murderer, alias Jack the Ripper, placed her body on her back in the center of the bed, and then he went to work. For the first time, he had killed a woman indoors, in complete privacy, with nothing to stop him from indulging his horrific homicidal fantasies. What he did to Mary Jane Kelly was nothing less than an atrocity. Because Mary Jane Kelly was murdered in her room at 13 Miller's Court, for the first time in this case, the police had access to an undisturbed crime scene that was not in public view. Photographs were taken of Mary Jane Kelly's body on the bed. I would caution everyone before looking at these pictures. You cannot unsee them. It makes you immensely grateful that black-and-white photography was the only technology available at the time. Even mercifully lacking color, seeing what the Whitechapel murderer did to Mary Jane Kelly is an unforgettable horror. 
In the afternoon of Friday, November 9th, 1888, Dr. Thomas Bond and Dr. George Bagster Phillips performed the autopsy on Mary Jane Kelly. Their examination is estimated to have taken between two and a half and six and a half hours. Her death occurred between two o'clock a.m. and eight o'clock a.m., keeping in mind that two neighbors heard a woman cry out murder shortly before four o'clock a.m., and another neighbor heard what she described as a man's footsteps leaving Miller's court around 5.45 a.m. Dr. Thomas Bond testified about the post-mortem of Mary Jane Kelly. It is hard to listen to. The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed, the shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent, the forearm supine with the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angles to the trunk and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubes. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, viz. the uterus and kidneys, with one breast under her head, the other breast by her right foot, the liver between her feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body, the flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bedclothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on a floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed and in line with the neck was marked by blood which had struck it in a number of separate slashes. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all her features. The neck was cut through the skin and the other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The skin cuts and the front of the neck showed distinct echiomosis, a discoloration of the skin resulting from bleeding underneath, typically caused by bruising. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx through the Cricoid cartilage. Both breasts were more and less removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the fourth, fifth, and sixth ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the costal arch to the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front to the bone. The flap of skin, including the external organs of generation and part of the right buttock, the left 
thigh was stripped of skin fascia and muscles as far as the knee. The left calf showed a long gash through skin and tissues to the deep muscles and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small superficial incision about one inch long with an extravasation of blood in the skin, and there were several abrasions on the back of the hand, moreover showing the same condition. On opening the thorax, it was found that the right lung was minimally adherent by old firm adhesions. The lower part of the lung was broken and torn away, the left lung was intact. It was adherent at the apex, and there were few adhesions over the side. In the substances of the lung, there were several nodules of consolidation. The pericardium was open below, and the heart absent. In the abdominal cavity, there was some partly digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. Dr. George Baxter Phillips was also present at the scene, as he had been for most of the other Whitechapel murder victims, and he added the following testimony at the inquest into the death of Mary Jane Kelly. The mutilated remains of a female were lying two-thirds over towards the edge of the bedstead nearest the door, she had only her chemise on or some underlinen garment. I am sure that the body had been moved subsequent to the injury which caused her death from that side of the bedstead that was nearest the wooden partition because of the large quantity of blood under the bedstead and the saturated condition of the sheet and palliez, the straw mattress at the corner nearest the partition. The blood was produced by the severance of the carotid artery, which was the cause of death. The Whitechapel murderer took Mary Jane Kelly's heart away with him. It was the only one of her internal organs missing from the crime scene. Police surmised that the killer had burned clothing in the fireplace to bring more light into the room. The fireplace in Mary Jane Kelly's room had burned so hot on the night of her death that a metal pot hanging above the fire was found partially melted by the intense heat. Dr. Thomas Bond also testified at the inquest about his opinion on the killer's experience. In each case, the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or a person accustomed to cut up dead animals. On Monday, November 19, 1888, the body of Mary Jane Kelly is finally laid to rest, ten days after she was murdered. The Daily Telegraph newspaper reported, The funeral of the murdered woman Kelly has once more been postponed, 
deceased was a Catholic, and the man Barnett, with whom she lived, and her landlord, Mr. McCarthy, desired to see her remains interred within the ritual of her church. The funeral will therefore take place tomorrow, November 19th, in the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Leytonstone. The hearse will leave the Shoreditch Mortuary at half-past twelve. The remains of Mary Janet Kelly, who was murdered on November 9th in Miller's Court, Dorset Street, Spitalfields, were brought yesterday morning from Shoreditch Mortuary to the cemetery at Leytonstone, where they were interred. No family member could be found to attend the funeral. The newspaper gets her name wrong. Because Mary Jane Kelly, in the later years of her life, often preferred to be known by the French spelling of her name, Marie Jeanette, and even her death certificate cites her name as Marie Jeanette Kelly, as does her gravestone. It is true that none of Mary Kelly's biological family was present at her burial. However, thousands of people from Whitechapel attended her funeral. To put it into modern language, Mary Kelly's logical family was there for her in the end. Several large wreaths of flowers adorned her coffin, as well as a cross made of flowers. The wreaths on her coffin were accompanied by notes written from those who had known her. The flower cross bore a large card with the words, A Last Tribute of Respect to Mary Kelly. May she rest in peace, and may her murderer be brought to justice. As the coffin was driven to the cemetery, men and women touched it as it passed by them. Every man held his hat to his heart in respect, and many of the women were openly weeping. The East London Advertiser reported, The sight was quite remarkable, and the emotion natural and unconstrained. So many people followed her hearse and wanted to pay their last respects that it took an hour and a half to travel the six miles from the mortuary to the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Leytonstone. Joseph Barnett, her partner, was her chief mourner. Kneeling by the gravesite, along with the six women who had testified at the inquest into Mary Kelly's murder, her friends, Marianne Cox, Elizabeth Prater, Caroline Maxwell, Sarah Lewis, Julia Venturney, and Mary Harvey. The location of Marie Jeanette Kelly's gravesite was reclaimed in the 1950s. In 1986, a man named John Morrison paid for a large white headstone for her, but he mistakenly marked the wrong grave. In the 1990s, the correct location of Kelly's final resting place was located and the cemetery placed a memorial stone there to honor her memory. It reads, In loving memory of Marie Jeanette Kelly, none but the lonely hearts can know my sadness. Love lives forever. On the anniversary of her death, November 9th, every single year to this day, the grave of Marie Jeanette Kelly 
is covered in a rainbow blanket of beautiful flowers left by innumerable visitors from all over the world. The White Chapel Murderer Jack the Ripper tried to obliterate her as a human being. But in the end, he failed. He took her life and mutilated her body, but Marie Jeanette Kelly is still remembered and still mourned as a woman, as a human being who mattered. After the death of Mary Jane Kelly on November 9th, 1888, the Whitechapel murders stopped. Several other women of Whitechapel were murdered over the next few years, but none of them were victims of the serial killer known as Jack the Ripper. Serial killers do not de-escalate. They only stop killing because they are caught, put in jail for other lesser criminal offenses, move on to another part of the world where their previous crimes are not connected, or they die. We do not know why the White Chapel murderer stopped, but after their horrible death, of Mary Jane Kelly, the autumn of terror that had plagued the east end of London for four months and two days from August 7th to November 9th, 1888, was finally over, leaving six women dead and no answers. By the end of this sequence of unsolved crimes, the whole world was watching. Queen Victoria herself sent a message to the head of Scotland Yard in outrage. She wrote, this new, most ghastly murder shows the absolute necessity for some very decided action. All these streets must be lit, and our detectives improved. They are not what they should be. This is one of the few bright lights in this dark, sad Tale. Because of what happened to these six women, because the local and international press took notice, the living conditions of Whitechapel and the East End as a whole could no longer be ignored. The systemic poverty suffered by thousands, if not millions, of human beings was finally seen and given a voice. Something had to be done, something to help make the lives of these human beings better. Before the autumn of 1888, England and the world at large were completely content to ignore the pain and suffering and dismiss them as other, as unfortunates who deserved the filthy slums they lived in. After 1888, this was no longer possible. Less than a year later, Parliament began to pass laws to improve the living conditions of the poor in the East End, the slumlords who profited off the misery of others were gradually broken up, and the slums themselves were eventually demolished 
social justice programs were put in place to help those who were less fortunate operated with humanity and compassion. They didn't solve everything, of course, but finally the people of Whitechapel were seen and heard. Change happened slowly, as it always does. But change for the better did happen in the East End. It's still a process happening to this day. Less than 50 years after the Whitechapel murders of 1888, Almost all of the workhouses, common lodging houses, and slums I have mentioned in this narrative no longer existed. It is worth thinking about that the intensely increased police presence in Whitechapel was reduced back to normal very quickly after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly. Several historical documents written by the primary investigators of this case suggest to many scholars that the identity of the Whitechapel murderer was known. To the police. According to several of their accounts, they had their man, and they had a witness who identified the man as the killer, having seen him clearly in the street with one of the victims. But the witness declined to testify in court for reasons. I choose not to go into here. Their suspect was admitted to an insane asylum shortly after Mary Jane Kelly's murder and subsequently died while a patient there. So, perhaps the police knew. And they also knew Jack the Ripper was no longer a threat to the women of Whitechapel. But they couldn't prove the case in a courtroom, so they let it fade into history. Perhaps. There have been hundreds of theories as to who Jack the Ripper was, some very sensational. I will not endorse any one or the other here, but if you want to look further into this unsolved mystery, I would personally encourage you to look first at what the policeman who directly investigated the Whitechapel murders wrote about what they thought they knew. It is perhaps as close to a truth as we can get, but there is still no definitive answer in those old words. Who was Jack the Ripper? The truth is, we will probably never know and I would argue that it doesn't matter in the end. We can know who these women were, and that is what this entire series has been about. In the end, they are the ones that matter and deserve to be seen, not him. In Madame Tussaud's famous wax museum in London, there is a rule that no one whose likeness is unknown can be depicted. In Madame Tussaud's infamous and sadly now closed 
Chamber of Horrors, Jack the Ripper is depicted only as a dark shadow on a lonely Whitechapel street. And that is how I will leave him, whoever he was. A shadow, unknowable, in hell, where he belongs. If you want to do your own further research into this case, and I hope you do, there are several sources that I have used in writing this narrative that I highly recommend. The first is the website www.casebook.org. Existing almost since the beginning of the internet, virtually every piece of known information about the Whitechapel murders is available here. There is no better resource, and it is still constantly updated and expanded. I feel a duty to note that casebook.org also has an incredible podcast of its own, RipperCast, which is well worth listening to. Casebook.org's editor, Stephen P. Ryder, concludes the website's mission statement with these words. Most importantly, however, we must remember that the whole of this fantastic mystery revolves around the deaths of five women whose lives were as precious and as ephemeral as our own. Mary Ann Nichols, devoted daughter and mother of five, Annie Chapman, who struggled through a chronic disease of the lungs and brain. Elizabeth Stride, a Swedish immigrant who once ran a successful coffee shop with her husband. Catherine Eddowes, mother of three. And Mary Kelly, barely 25, already a widow. They were mothers, sisters, and daughters, all women whose lives, pitiful as they may have been, did not justify their destruction. Do not ignore their humanity as the Ripper did, but embrace it. Only then can you truly appreciate the tragedy of the case. Only then can you understand why the search must continue. I have also constantly referenced the book Jack the Ripper, The Facts, written by historian Paul Begg. It is the only book about this case written without any personal agenda or theory to advance, relying only on the facts as told by primary sources. It is incredibly well written and deeply compassionate. Paul Begg's Jack the Ripper, The Facts, is absolutely essential reading. FBI criminal, uh, criminal profiler John Douglas's book, The Cases That Haunt Us, contains an, an incredible chapter on the Whitechapel murders examined through a modern forensic lens. I recommend this book to anyone who is interested in unsolved mysteries. It will be referenced again this season. For the folks who enjoy documentaries, the very best one about the Whitechapel murders is called Jack the Ripper, The Definitive Story, made in 2011. 90 minutes long, 
It is currently available to watch for free on YouTube and is also currently streaming on Amazon Prime Video. I also highly recommend reading Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's epic masterpiece of a graphic novel, From Hell. The authors use a famous theory, the royal conspiracy, which they acknowledge to be false, as a springboard to tell the story of a whole society meticulously researched and including dozens of pages of footnotes as an appendix, Moore and Campbell paint the most vivid portrait of Whitechapel I've ever seen, rendered in stark, brutal, black and white drawings. They dedicate from hell to the women killed by the Whitechapel murderer. Quote, You and your demise of these things alone, we are certain. The women who were killed by the Whitechapel murderer were faceless until the 1960s. It was then that their mortuary photographs were finally discovered. Now all of their faces are visible on Wikipedia or a simple Google search. Search with caution. As I said earlier in part two of this series, Annie Chapman is the only person where we have a verified photograph of her alive. The others are all post-mortem, and the photos we have of Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly after death in particular cannot be unseen. However, these terrible images are the closest we can come to seeing these women face to face. They are the ugly, brutal truth of what was done to these innocent human beings. Proceed with caution. If you choose to look, try and see beyond the brutality visible on the surface and see the soul underneath, the life, the years yet to be lived, that were stolen from them. Author and social historian Hallie Rubenhold has done so much work in the past few years to remember the lives of these women. Hallie Rubenhold is the author of The Five, the first book to exclusively focus on the lives of the so-called canonical five victims, which excludes Martha Tabram, as I do not. Because her book's intent matched so closely with my own, I decided not to read it before writing my own narrative I did, however, read many interviews she's given about her book and her words, thoughts, and opinions made an indelible impact on the narrative you have been listening to. Her perspective on this case is deeply important and necessary. In an interview with The Guardian newspaper on March 1st, 2019, Hallie Rubenhold said, For too long there has been this idea that these women were all the same, a nameless, faceless mass of grubby, disgusting people, indistinguishable from one another. And they aren't. 
we always start with the murders, then focus on who Jack the Ripper was to the point that he has become a supernatural creature like Dracula or Frankenstein's monster. But he was a real person who killed real people. This all happened. And our dissociation from the reality is what dehumanized these women. They have become just corpses. Can't we do better? It is negligent of us not to tell the stories of people who had no voice. It is morally wrong to continue excluding people and only consider the privileged. We're lying to people when we do that. Some people say they're only interested in the Ripper because they want justice for his victims. No. Justice is served when we respect them as human beings. Finding their killer is utterly irrelevant. Time to move on. On February 10th, 2020, the day that I am writing these final words, the Guardian newspaper made an announcement that I eagerly read Plans are in motion for a permanent mural of the five canonical victims, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly, again excluding Martha Tabram, to be painted somewhere forever on a public wall in Whitechapel. Author and historian Hallie Rubenhold said of this announcement, People have been talking about having a memorial to these women for some time. Whitechapel isn't really a place you put a statue, but a mural. That's it. It's exactly what's needed. The Ripper story starts with the moment of their deaths, but four of them were alive for over forty years, and one until she was twenty-five. That's a lot of years and experiences. So a mural should celebrate the life of these women. Put them back in the center of White Chapel. The Whitechapel murders happened only 132 years ago. For some living right now in 2020, the women whose lives were ended during 1888's Autumn of Terror are their great-grandmothers. In a 2015 BBC television documentary called Uncovering Jack the Ripper, Maureen Nichols, a descendant of Mary Ann Polly Nichols, had this to say. I feel like it's important to take away from some of the trivialized nature of some of the movies and stories that are out there it almost idolizes the offender rather than the victims. It might just be an entertainment type of thing. And not even thinking that these are real people and they have family. And I am one. I don't think there's any stigma whatsoever in what Marianne did to support herself. How she got her money. If she was down and out and had nothing, she would have to survive whatever way she could. In the United States and throughout the world today, people like 
the six victims of the Whitechapel murderer are as at risk right now in 2020 as they were in Whitechapel 1888. The Sex Workers Project operates out of the Urban Justice Center in New York City. The Sex Workers Project provides legal and social services to sex workers, assisting anyone involved with prostitution, including those who are victimized by human trafficking, as Mary Ann Kelly was. Seeking to create safe conditions and provide resources to sex workers, the Sex Workers Project also aims to eliminate sex trafficking and provide assistance to those who are suffering due to forced sex work. You can learn more about the Sex Workers Project at swp.urbanjustice.org. To end this long tale on a personal note. This did not turn out how I expected. I had planned this to be a two-part story, but the more I learned and listened and wrote, I realized these women demanded their time to tell the stories of their lives as fully as is possible for us to know. I hope I did them proud. Whether I did or not is up to you. But it is up to you now to go and learn more about them if you choose and to see these women because they all mattered. They still do. The next episodes of the, of the Going Dark Theater podcast will move forward in time to the summer of 1892 and travel to the small town of Fall River, Massachusetts to investigate the case of Lizzie Borden. This series of unsolved mysteries will unfold in their own time during this season. I hope you come with me on the journey. Thank you all for listening to Going Dark Theater. This is for Martha White. Tabram, born on May 10th, 1849, and murdered on August 7th, 1888, 39 years on this earth. This is for Mary Ann Walker, Polly Nichols, born on August 26th, 1845, and murdered on August 31st, 1888, 43 years on this earth. This is for Annie Eliza Smith Chapman, born sometime in September 1841 and murdered on September 8th, 1888, 47 or 48 years on this earth. This is for Elizabeth Gustavdotter Stride, born on November 27, 1843, and murdered on September 30, 1888, 44 years on this earth. This is for Catherine Eddowes, alias Kate Kelly, born on April 14, 1842, and murdered on September 30th, 1888, 46 years on this earth. This 
is for Mary Jane, alias Marie Jeanette Kelly, born sometime in 1863 and murdered on November 8, 1888, 25 years on this earth. The world and the society they lived in failed all these women completely. It marked them all as forgotten, as alcoholic whores who deserved what happened to them. But their humanity cannot be erased and we should no longer allow it to be. In looking back 132 years ago, it is necessary to remember them all for who they really were, and look at ourselves in 2020 and what we are doing for those like them now. To quote the words of author and historian Hallie Rubenhold, Can't we do better? Martha Tabram, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride. Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly, rest in peace and power. You will never be forgotten. Good night, ladies. Goodbye. And now, until next time, my friends, going dark.